We've been talking about this Genesis series for a little while, and I am awfully excited to dig into it. Uh, if I'm maybe a little bit caffeinated this morning, you'll understand that I've been excited and looking forward to it. I have scaled back my caffeine intake this morning. I've only had six cups of coffee so far. Uh, I'm joking. Um, but we are, we are very much looking forward to this. I'm really excited um, for n- numerous things. I, I love the, the banners we have up here, the artwork. You guys have, church have participated in that. Uh, Brian, thank you for uh, your work in making all of those things come to be. Um, and, and I'm just excited to be here and study what God has to say to us. You know, the, um, I just dropped out of my pocket there, is an acorn. Acorn's not very big, is it? But it becomes an oak tree. And what is in that glorious oak tree right there, you can find that in South Carolina, everything you need for that oak tree is found in this little acorn. All the seed form, it's the DNA that will become that, can be found in an acorn. Now, an acorn is not the same thing as an oak tree, is it? No, it's not. But you find those basic constituents, the components, being found in seed form in an acorn. And that's a little bit like what the book of Genesis is for us. It's in seed form. It's the basic DNA of all the foundational elements of the world, of who God is and who we are, of how God works and the beginning of God's kingdom and his unfolding plan of redemption. We don't catch the whole of it in Genesis, but we catch those basic components, the DNA of it, you might say, and we'll get to see how it will grow and unfold over the entire Bible and see the beauty of who God is and how we're to worship him and what his kingdom is like and how he plans to redeem a people for himself. The word Genesis actually means beginnings or origins. Perhaps you knew that. That's um, one of the, this is one of the reasons I think all Christians should be baseball fans, is that the book of Genesis shows you the beginning of baseball. You heard Jeremy read it just there, right? In the beginning. All right, we're all getting there, good. It's, it's still early, it's early in the year, early here in the beginning, but it's the book of beginnings, the beginning of the Bible. There'll be 66 books, so this is the first one. It's the beginning of what we will often call, and this is a tricky word, the beginning of the Pentateuch. It's, a, like I said, it's kind of a tough word, but it just means the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call those five books a, the Pentateuch. It's, it's like a one book that's kind of a five-volume set, sometimes called the Torah, sometimes called the book of the law, the book of Moses. Genesis is the beginning of that and lays foundations for that essential work for God's people and how we're to live in his world. But it's not just beginnings, it's origins of the universe is what we read about in Genesis. It's the origin of God's people, of God's kingdom, of God's plan of redemption. All these things are encapsulated, the origin of them, in the book of Genesis. And so what that means for us is that Genesis is an incredibly foundational book. It's an incredibly foundational book. And one thing I know about foundations is that if you lay a weak foundation, whatever goes on top of it is going to be weak. You can think about a a building or a house that's weak. One thing we found in our family a couple of weeks ago is we had a trampoline in the back. 
And we thought we had this bad boy secured really well. We thought we had a strong foundation for our trampoline until those heavy winds came through, I don't know, three weeks ago that came through, and we found out our foundation wasn't so strong. Trampoline was picked up, thrown against the neighbor's house, and we had to pay to get the, the siding fixed and, and all of that kind of stuff. But if you have a weak foundation, you will have a weak building. And I think there's a lot of people here today that maybe see your life a bit like a trampoline, and you want to jump really high for God, and you want to make your life count. And you're thinking, how can I do something that matters with my life? Friends, let me tell you, one of the most important things you will ever do is lay a strong foundation in who God is and who he says you are and how you're to live your life. And that starts by us rightly reading the book of Genesis. That's why it's so important that we get a strong foundation laid here. You see, one one of the things that, that we see early on in the book of Genesis is that the Bible is not primarily about you. We read that God isn't a genie for all your hopes and your dreams. No, God doesn't exist to fulfill your desires. That's foundational. No, the Westminster Shorter Catechism would say that you were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He's the main character. So do you want to make your life count? Then make his name known, like the back of my shirt says. And how can you make his name known if you don't even know his name? How do you know his name and learn of his name? Enter the book of Genesis. That is the foundational book to tell us who God is and how we're to live. So what I want to do this morning is is three basic things. I want to give you a quick overview and introduction to the book of Genesis Take maybe 10 minutes to do that. And then I want to make one point from Genesis 1-1 and one point from Genesis 1-2. And in future weeks, I promise, we'll speed up. We'll cover more than two verses a week. Otherwise, we would be in Genesis for a very, very long time. All right, so let's background intro to Genesis. Genesis written by Moses while the Israelites are in the wilderness wandering. Now, this is really important. I know sometimes like the author audience stuff feels like an academic thing that belongs in seminary, but this actually matters for your life. Here's why. The Israelite people had been in slavery, in captivity in Egypt, and they were led out of Egypt miraculously by God. They go out into wilderness wandering, and in that season of the history of the Israelite people, That's where Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes down the book of Genesis. See, the Israelite people had been following God. They were trying to follow him and obey him. But they had lived for so long in Egypt Egypt, that they had sort of been baptized into Egyptian thinking in some ways. Now, we know this happens all the time. You live in a place long enough and you start to think like people in that place think. Like you live in Indiana long enough and you'll start to maybe think that like Purdue might win something in basketball one of these days. You know it's not true, but you live here long enough and you start to think that. Or you listen to the IU guys and they tell you like, yeah, eventually we will get back to the glory days of Bobby Knight. Like you live here long enough and you start to get baptized into that thinking. 
And that's what had happened to the Israelites. They lived in Egypt long enough. They were trying to follow God, but they were sort of baptized into Egyptian thinking. One quick way you can see this, the most important Egyptian god there ever was was the god Apis, who was the god of bulls. And so when the Israelites get confused out in the wilderness, where's Moses, what do they do? They turn and create a golden calf, a bull, because they've been baptized into that kind of thinking over time, and they think they're following God, but they've gotten mixed up. And so what Moses is doing, he's saying, look, I understand this happens to all people in all places. You can get confused in your thinking. You think you're following God, and you're not necessarily doing that. And so I'm going to write this book to tell you who God is and who you are and what you're supposed to do. Let me give you an example of, that's maybe not quite as uh, comical about America and Purdue and IU hoops and all of that. Uh, I think this is really common for American Christians when it relates to marriage. You might say, I embrace a Christian view of marriage. We're, we're striving for purity and for abstinence before we get married. We're not going to move in together. You know, we're going we're to try and do things the way God says. We're going to have a Christian view of marriage. But you also think that you ought to get married, or a major part of getting married, is so you have a spouse who can meet all your physical, relational, sexual, spiritual needs. And that's not a Christian view of marriage at all. You don't get married so somebody else can meet your needs. You, part of marriage from a Christian standpoint, is that I fully give of myself to serve and love that person. And it's a picture of the gospel where Jesus fully gave himself to love us. And you live in America long enough and you think you're the main character of the story and everybody exists to meet my needs, like McDonald's told us, so you can have it your way. And we sort of get baptized into American thinking in that way. And yes, I say, oh, I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm doing this the Christian way. But we need what Moses says here in the book of Genesis in the exact same way to say, man, let's reorient ourselves according to who God says he is and who we are and what we're supposed to do. A different way of saying this is to say that Moses answers our basic worldview questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what are some of the roadblocks? Questions of identity, who am I? Purpose, why am I here? Questions of our destination, where am I going? And like I said, roadblocks, what's, what's the problem? These are questions we all ask in various parts of our life. It's actually basic onboarding to a new job, isn't it? What's your job title? What are you going to do? How does this part of what you're doing fit into the larger whole of the organization and what's going to keep us from success? Isn't that foundational questions we're always asking in life? And Moses says, hey, here's the most critical part. Get all of these for your very existence. Wow. I want to know what he says. Let's dig in. Let's, let's find out. And the way Moses works to do this is to tell us a historical narrative that has a purpose. There's a purpose to it. So this is where we see the, the language of Genesis, his story, your story up there. It's the story of God and how he created the world and who he created you to be. But he also invites you into that story to find your place within the story. You see it on the screen. We would say that Genesis is a historical narrative serving as a theological argument. It's a real telling of history, but with a specific purpose to make an argument about who God is and how we are to rightly relate to him. 
Now, if you try and read Genesis like it's modern history, you will, of course, be frustrated because it's not modern history, it's ancient history, and history was written differently back then than it, than it is now. But it's, it's clearly an accounting of historical events, and it's got a very specific purpose to tell us, here's who God is, and here's how we are to live. The theme of the book of Genesis is really simple, creation and blessing. God creates and he blesses. He creates the world, he blesses the world. He creates animals, blesses animals. Creates people, blesses people. Creates a special nation, the Israelites, and blesses the nation. Creation, blessing. You see this over and over and over throughout. But the other major theme we'll see throughout Genesis in seed form and the rest of the Bible in the sprawling oak tree is that no matter how much God has created and blessed, humanity seeks to create their own path and find their own blessing apart from the blessing that God has provided. Over and over and over again. And so one of the other emerging themes, as Kevin DeYoung has said, is that God's promises are fulfilled through God's providence. He promises to bless, yet we seek blessing in our own way, and it doesn't work out. And so the only way for God's blessing to come to us is for God himself to provide that blessing for us. Because we don't get there on our own. We try and do it our own way. You see this just in a quick summary of the book of Genesis. Adam ate the fruit, not trusting God's promises. Noah got drunk, seeking a better blessing than the one God had provided. Abraham and Sarah laughed at God, thinking that his promises were outlandish. Isaac lied because he didn't trust God. Jacob thought there was a better path to blessing than the one God had promised. So he was known as a deceiver and a manipulator because he liked to create his own path to get a better blessing than the one God had promised. This is the theme you see running throughout the entire book of Genesis. And God's promises will be fulfilled through God's providence, ultimately culminating in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, where God looks down and says, humanity, you're trying to create your own way and find your own blessing, and it's not working, so eventually I will send my son Jesus to you, who will live the perfect life that you couldn't live, he will die the gruesome death you should have died so that you can receive the blessing of eternal life and a restored relationship with me that I created you for. That's the book of Genesis. We see it in seed form and we see it expanding out. I hope that at least piques your interest a little bit to, to dive in a little deeper and say, man, how do I see this plan of redemption in the book of Genesis? We could go on and on there but I said I wouldn't go on and on and on. So we'll pause our background there at least and dive into the passage that Jeremy read, Genesis 1, 1 through 2. I said one point from Genesis 1, 1, one point from Genesis 1, 2. Here's the one point from Genesis 1, 1. God creates out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, we're immediately given the identity of the creator. We're immediately given his identity. And the, the word that's used in the original Hebrew says that he is the strong one. He's the mighty one. If you're familiar with names of God, it's the word Elohim. 
God, the mighty one. God, the strong one. It's not a generic God. No, it's a very specific mighty one who creates out of nothing. There's a very clear emphasis on the who before the how. Who's the creator is more important than how he created. And Moses quickly distinguishes this Elohim, the strong, mighty one, from other gods that the Israelites would have been familiar with. They just came out of Egypt. They knew about the Egyptian gods. They knew about the Babylonian gods. They knew about all the other gods in what we call the ancient Near East, that area. And Moses will distinguish Elohim, say he's different, he's the only true God, because he had no beginning. In the beginning, God was already there. He's the self-existent one. He's eternal. Unlike the other ancient Near Eastern gods, God doesn't create out of need for anything. That's what the, the other gods, the Egyptian gods said that the gods had a need for fulfillment, so they created humanity to meet their needs. That's not the God of the Bible. The ancient Near Eastern gods would say something like there was a conflict, a cosmic conflict between good and evil, and the resolution was, all right, now here's this earth to sort of resolve the conflict we've been having forever. No, there was no forever conflict. It was God in his goodness saying, I will create. Pastor Steve, a second ago, read Acts 17. Let's look back at it here and see the rest of the Bible unpacking the acorn of Genesis 1. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. As if he needed anything. He doesn't need anything. He didn't create out of need. He created out of his strength, out of his might, that all the nations would know who he is. That's why he created. And as we track this seed form of who God is throughout the rest of the Bible, we see a consistent command from God that we proclaim his name, who Elohim is. Because all the world, including everyone in this room, is regularly on a path to find another lesser God who cannot create, who cannot satisfy, who cannot bring lasting joy. Jeremiah 10, the prophet was told this, Tell them this. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that be an amazing way to receive revelation from God? Just bold, direct. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. What does Jeremiah go to? Why the other gods will perish? Because they didn't make the earth and the heavens. Psalm 96 for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. <laughs> worthless idols. That's what every god is except for Elohim because no one else made the heavens and the earth. And you can say that and I can say it and it's probably not surprising to you that I would say that, but I wonder in your heart of hearts this morning, if you've actually taken time to identify who 
are the worthless gods that I might be following today? Who are they? Is it the false god of control that you worship and it causes you to worry about everything? Is it the false god of success that promises joy in the next accomplishment that you think you can bring by the work of your hands? Is it the false god of religion? And you find yourself filling your life with all kinds of religious activity instead of delighting in Elohim. See, there's all kinds of false gods that permeate this room and this entire world, and they are worthless idols. You must worship the God who creates out of nothing. You see, not only does Moses give us the identity of the creator, he tells us of the origin of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth, what does that mean? Really simple, everything you can see and everything you can't. That's what God made. Keep it simple this morning, right? God made it out of nothing. We call that creation ex nihilo, ex out of nihilo nothing. There were no pre-existing materials that he picked up. He didn't get some, you know, Legos, he didn't get a Tonka truck, he didn't get, he didn't get anything, he started with nothing. You realize, if you hold your hands like this, what's inside your hands right now? Not nothing. There's at least air to work with in there. It is remarkably hard to wrap your mind around what nothing is. Maybe impossible, but God created out of nothing. And our modern accounts of the origin of the world and the ancient accounts were in contrast to this. Right, today we're told there was some sort of ancient primordial soup that's been evolving and one thing led to another and this led to that and that's how we got our universe. I referenced some of the ancient ones before. We don't need to go back into all of that. But we see very clearly Moses presenting a historical narrative as a theological argument. Here's what happened, and it's arguing for a specific view of who God is. And I'm going to show you how the other accounts do not hold up. They don't hold their own weight. And what Moses says, we see, again, affirmed throughout the rest of the Bible. It's the acorn growing into the oak tree. Hebrews 11.3, we read, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He made it out of nothing. Or Colossians 1, we read how Jesus was involved in creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Wow. See, you don't explicitly see in Genesis 1 that Jesus was actively involved in creation but as that acorn expands into an oak tree, you see that the whole trinity was involved in creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I know it's, it's easy, it's simplistic for us to say everything you can see and everything you can't, that's what God made. 
by the word of his power, he spoke it into existence like that out of nothing. So let me go a little bit deeper. I'll just pause here and think about what this means. This means that all 29,000 feet up in the air of Mount Everest, word of God's power came into existence. And going the other direction, at the deepest point of the ocean, it is 36,000 feet deep. It's pretty deep water. You saw the water pressure there? If you were at the bottom, it would be like you are, imagine being at an airport. You see those massive 747s? Imagine yourself underneath one of them trying to hold up the entire thing by yourself. Okay, now imagine two of them. Three, four. The bottom of that ocean is like you standing directly underneath 48 747s trying to hold them up. The heights of Everest, the lowest part of the sea, God spoke by the word of his power immediately into existence. He is Elohim, the strong one. And that's the stuff you can see. So how about the stuff you can't? In the 1960s, scientists discovered what we now know as the smallest subatomic particle known as quarks, Q-U-A-R-K-S. There might be something smaller. We just haven't found it yet. If we find something smaller, I'll change the way I preach it and talk about that. But for now, that's all we have. So hold out your hand. Everybody hold it out. I want you to picture in your hand a grain of sand. One single grain of sand. Now, if you wanted to cut a grain of sand in half, you might be able to. I don't know if you could do fourths or eighths or sixteenths. But to get from a grain of sand to a quark, you have to divide the grain of sand into one million pieces. That gives you the radius of a DNA double helix. You then divide it, one of those pieces, into 40 pieces, and that gives you the radius of a hydrogen atom. You take that piece, and you divide it into 60,000 pieces, and that gives you the radius of a proton. You take that piece, and you divide it into 2,000 pieces, and then you get a quark. I have no idea how small that is. But the heights of Everest, the lowest part of the ocean, and umpteen billion, trillion, quadrillion quarks got spoken to existence immediately by the word of his power, and it wasn't hard for him. And I've only begun to tell you about the things on this little planet known as Earth. We've not begun to talk about the solar system yet. Galaxies upon galaxies. So imagine you could drive at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. You need a joyride this afternoon. So imagine you could, to give an idea how fast that is, you could go around the circumference of the globe seven times in less than one second. That's pretty fast. So imagine you could drive at that speed from today straight back to the birth of Jesus Christ. Non-stop, 24-7, you got like rotating drivers so you don't, you know, drive recklessly. <laughs> and you get there and you think, man, that was pretty fun, let's do it again. So you pull a U-turn and without even doing anything, you like stop at Culver's and get a cheeseburger and drive straight back. 
for 2,000 more years. So you've been driving for 4,000 years at the speed of light. Guys, you'd have to make that journey 10,000 more times at the speed of light, never stopping, never breaking, to even get near the edge of the observable universe. I, I don't have, like, I can't even comprehend how massive that is. And God says, boom, by the word of my power, I spoke it into existence, and it wasn't hard for me. I think about it, like, wow, that makes me want to just burst out into song. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son. Praise the Spirit, three in one. Praise him. He is the strong one. That it is unlike any other. There's none like him. But as we lay that out, I also want to recognize that there might be some of you here that aren't sure if you take the Bible at face value. Like Justin, that's fine if you believe what it says, but I'm still trying to figure out if I actually agree with this stuff or not. Like maybe you've been a Christian for a little while or a long while and you're not sure, like can I actually believe what the Bible says? Or maybe you're not a Christian at all and you're wondering about it, you're investigating or you're fairly opposed. I don't know where you're at, but I want you to know it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago I had something like a crisis of faith where I had to reinvestigate and say, is this really what I believe? Am I really going to base my entire life on this stuff? And what I found is that the reason that I'm still a Christian, yes, there's the work of the Holy Spirit in me and there's theological ways I explain that, but what I could understand with my mind is that the best historical evidence in all the world and the best scientific evidence in all the world and the best philosophical evidence in all the world all pointed to exactly what the Bible said. And I took about two or three years to study it out and, I mean, just taking in books and articles and podcasts and debates and videos like I dug in as much as I could and found, yeah, everything that the Bible says is corroborated by the best evidence we have in a whole variety of disciplines. And if you're wondering about whether or not you can trust it or not, first off, I'd invite you to come back on January 19th where I'll be giving that talk on is Christianity anti-science? That'd be a great spot where we can dig in a little bit deeper. I'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe we even have lunch leading up to that. Just reach out, and, and I would really enjoy that. Um, but let me just give you one little sn snippet, a snapshot of some of the things I found. Uh, in a second, I'm going to share a quote from a guy named Robert Jastrow. Robert Jastrow was one of the leading NASA scientists in the 20th century. And Dr. Jastrow is not a Christian. Okay, he doesn't come to this from a perspective of faith. Uh, he's mostly agnostic. But upon his study of the galaxies and astronomy, here's what Dr. Jastrow said. So this, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods 
that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. You might say this would make them more inclined to accept religious views on the origin of the world. But their materialism is so deeply imbued in them, the general response has been simply to avoid considering the implications that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. It seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance, he is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. But can I just remind you, this dude's not a Christian. He's not arguing for the Bible here. He's just saying, I'm trying to see the work of my life in science and figure out what it means, and these are the conclusions. Surely, God is an awesome God. And if you're questioning and you're wondering, I hope that you will dive deeply into the best evidence that's there, and I would love to be part of that study with you. Because what you'll find in all the external world is exactly what you find in the Bible. Moses gives us the identity of the creator, origin of the universe, and there's a third thing. He ties the beginning to the end, the past to the future, by saying, in the beginning, almost everything with a beginning has an ending, right? Almost everything. In this case, the universe does. There's a begin, and it will end. And what's the end point that we're going to see drawn out? The acorn is given in Genesis. The rest of the Bible shows us Habakkuk 2 for there will be a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Fully, completely, exhaustively. There's nothing uncovered from it. So we see in the first banner here, Genesis is his story. There's Eden that's created. But it's looking ahead to another story, the eternal state where the Earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and these worshipers that God creates and puts in the Garden of Eden will fill the entire earth, and all the earth will be filled with worshipers from every tribe and language and nation and kingdom. That's what we're looking ahead to, so that one day we can sit around the throne room of God and sing like we see in Revelation 4.11, the song say, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Wow, that's what we're looking ahead to. And so establishing God as the creator means God's the owner of everything. He created it, he owns it, and we will all recognize that one day. I wonder right now, think about this, 
Are there aspects of your life where you know God has created everything, but you don't necessarily act as he is the owner of everything in your life? Do we see certain things, I get this, this is mine. Is my home, my apartment, my condo a haven to retreat from the world or a gift from God that he owns so that we can make our life count by making his name known? Your personality, the skills you possess, your intellect, are those the things that you have, you own, you use to make a name for yourself, to gain friends, to get a job, to accomplish things? Or does God own them? And they're to be used by you to make your life count by making his name known. You see how this doctrine of creation has radical implications of not just saying Elohim is the strong one, but if he created it with a purpose that all peoples would see his glory, then he owns every single part of you and you exist to make his name known. You can smile and nod at Genesis 1.1. Yes, I know that's what it says, but it has a transforming effect on your life when you actually consider the implications. Everything exists for God's glory. So one, God creates out of nothing. I said I'd make a point out of Genesis 1.2, and this one will be shorter than the first one. Genesis 1.2, God provides in the emptiness. God provides in the emptiness. Look back at your copy of the Bible with me. I want you to see a couple of things in Genesis 1-2. There are three quick clues we get. There's a word without form and void. You see that right there? If you're a highlighter or an underliner or a circler, you'll want to underline that. And we're going we're gonna to have some fun with that in a minute. The Hebrew word is tohu wabohu. Say, say that back to me. Tohu wabohu. Say it again. Good. We'll come back to that in a second. Here's what it means. We read without form and void. It's a uninhabitable land, uninhabitable land. It's a desert, a wasteland, often translated, or sometimes the depths of the sea where nothing can live. That's what we see initially. And then second, we see there was darkness over the face of the deep. A darkness in the Bible often is it kind of contrasted against light. Darkness is not good. Light is good. Jesus shows up. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. The light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see an uninhabitable desert wasteland that's filled with darkness and the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. Now, the waters in the Bible often mean either chaos or judgment, Think of the flood. How did God judge the world in Noah's day? Through the chaos of the waters. In Jonah's life, how did God's judgment come? Through the chaos of the waters. And so when Jesus shows up and walks on water, it's not like a fancy trick that Jim Carrey does in Bruce Almighty. No, he's saying, no, I have conquered, I'm greater than the chaos that has governed your life up to this point. So the picture of the world we get right away is an uninhabitable desert wasteland with darkness brooding everywhere and the chaotic waters are present. And yet in the midst of a bleak picture, there's a glimmer of hope. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. The word picture we get is that of a, an eagle hovering over her young. Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 11 explains that. I'm not gonna turn there. 
We see an eagle protecting, caring for. You are not ready to fly yet, but I'm preparing you for a day when all people will see your glory. You see, there's this acorn of God's provision in the emptiness of the world. And next week, we'll see how the Spirit provides in the emptiness. But it's not just in the outside world. There's an emptiness in our heart as well that the Spirit provides in our emptiness. So I want want to pause here. I want to to double-click on this without form and void for just a second and see how the Spirit provides in our emptiness, in our tohu wabohu. You get to say it again. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Tohu wabohu. What does that mean? Well, that, those two words, tohu wabohu, they only show up one other time in the whole Bible. This is super fascinating to see the acorn of God's plan of redemption growing out into the sprawling oak tree. Tohu wabohu shows up in Jeremiah 4. Jeremiah 4 is where the prophet, uh, we don't need that just yet, the prophet is um, explaining the idolatry of God's people. Here's how you've turned away from me. God says, I created you and I blessed you. You tried to seek your own way, create your own way and find your own blessing. And Jeremiah documents, here's the ways that you have been an idolatrous nation. And you keep trying to do it your own way and it keeps not working out. Jeremiah 4 is the conclusion of that and here's what the prophet says. He says, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. Tell us how you really feel. They have no understanding. They are, quote, wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. It was tohu wabohu. And to the heavens, and they had no light. You see, what God is doing is saying there's a formless emptiness and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep and the Spirit will provide the blessing that God has promised to this earth. And it's like a wide funnel throughout the Bible and it comes in and he says God has also promised blessing to you if you are in Jesus Christ. And you can try to seek that blessing in your own way, but God's promises are fulfilled through God's providence and the Spirit comes to you in your emptiness, in your weakness, in the void of your life and says, you try and pursue this on your own way and you're gonna get more tohu wabohu. You're gonna get more emptiness. You try and do it apart from what I've said to do, it's not gonna work. It will look good, but it won't work out good. So you can feel your own emptiness. You can feel your own tohu wabohu. And you can look for a new relationship to satisfy it, a new hobby, a new Netflix show, a new vacation spot. But what God's saying is your life will become a desolate desert wasteland by pursuing the blessed life apart from God's plan. Darkness will encompass everything you do and no amount of success will bring lasting joy. Trying to hold yourself up under the pressures of this life 
It will be like you're in the chaos of the depths of the sea and you're at the bottom of it trying to hold up 48 747s at one time. It will be absolutely crushing to try and create your own path and find your own blessing apart from what God has ordained. You see, the story of the Bible is that humanity is constantly seeking to create their own path, find their own blessing, and it's going horribly wrong. And the only hope for us is that God's promises are fulfilled through God's providence. And in the middle of the Old Testament, we see this beautifully striking passage, a nugget of the gospel that should fill your heart with great joy. And I know when I tell you the passage, you will not think great joy, but I just want you to be prepared to be surprised. This will be the last verse we read. Ezekiel 36. I know when I say Ezekiel, you don't think great joy. What, there's joy in Ezekiel? What is this? But listen to this. Listen to the promise God makes. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear that? God's saying, I'm going to provide this because you could never do it on your own. We keep reading. You shall dwell in the land I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine on you. There's no desert, desolate wasteland here. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. What did he say? You found yourself empty. You tried to do it your own way. It got you more tohu wabohu. So I came and I fulfilled my promise of blessing through the providence of my spirit being placed inside of you where I carry you in the right way and I bring the blessing to you. And ultimately, ultimately, that came through the person and the work of Jesus Christ where Jesus literally came down to earth to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died. He took our tohu wabohu so that we could have the blessing of eternity with God in heaven. So I wonder this morning, as we are really close to wrapping up here, I wonder if you are here and you're not a Christian and you've been seeking to fill the tohu wabohu, the emptiness in your life, with something besides the God of the universe, and it's not working, this morning, you can make a radical change of confess that he is the strong God, there's no other God, all the other gods are worthless idols, and I'm gonna follow him. I would love to talk to you about that after the service. But if you're here as a Christian, this message applies to you too. 
Because you, like the Israelites, you may be following God and trying to, but recognizing there are parts of my life where I've been baptized into American thinking, just like they were baptized into Egyptian thinking. And I'm here at church, I'm listening to God's word be preached, but I'm still trying to fill the emptiness in my life, trying to find meaning and joy and satisfaction apart from what God has said. I'm trying to create my own path and find my own blessing. Can I just remind you, like the trampoline in my backyard, without the strong foundation and the God who creates out of nothing and provides in your emptiness, you will be blown away. It's only a matter of time before the wind comes. And it doesn't matter how high you want to jump for God, the intention is not going to matter if you're not anchored in the God of the universe. You will get more tohu wabohu. Friends, I want you to have the blessed life that God has promised. And there's only one path to it. So we're gonna go to communion in a second. I'll give everybody like 60 seconds of silence to reflect on where am I not living in light of Elohim and where am I seeking the blessing on my own? Tell God about it. Listen to him. Come and talk to me in the back if you want. And after you've had a few seconds, you can take communion when you're ready. And then the band will be up and they'll play and we'll sing and we'll go from there. But let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you created all things by the word of your power. You hold them together in ways we cannot understand. Thank you, you've not only created, but you've blessed. We know that your promises are fulfilled through your providence, not through anything we could do. And we ask for your grace to see areas in our life where we're trying to create our own path and find our own blessing apart from what you've already ordained. Help us to repent, to turn back to you, and follow you as the only source of life. We pray it in your name. Amen.